You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. Exodus chapter 14 is one of the most wonderful chapters in the book of Exodus and really in many ways in the Old Testament and in Scripture in general. In Exodus 14, we get to study the victory that God won for the people of Israel completely, totally, and finally over the Egyptians. Now, God had already, of course, through the ten plagues, the three sets of three, so the first nine plagues, and the tenth plague, the Passover itself and the angel of death, God had won an incredible victory for the people of Israel over Egypt, particularly over the Egyptian false gods. There was one thing that was left in the Egyptian arsenal, and it was their advanced military and their advanced military weaponry, namely chariots. And so the people of Israel now in Exodus 14 are going to experience great victory, not because of their own might, their own power, or their own strength, but strictly and exclusively because of the power of God working for them on their side as God will win this incredible victory, this miraculous victory for them at the Red Sea. This is a story now in Exodus 14 that so much of the Bible points back to. And in fact, future generations in Israel would often recount this marvelous, incredible, miraculous victory that God had won for them there at the Red Sea. Psalm 76, verse 4. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil, the psalmist writes. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. And so the people continually, as you can see just from that short little psalm, the people continually went back to the memory of the victory that God had won for them at the Red Sea and used it as a source of hope and encouragement, something which would build up their faith and strengthen them for the challenges at hand. Let's begin reading now in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. One of the first things that we notice is the location that God directed the people of Israel to. <laughs> it's fascinating because he actually puts them in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, and right up against the Red Sea, by the Red Sea. Literally, probably, Sea of Reeds or Sea of Papyrus Reeds. 
And one of the first things that you have to notice is that God has put them now in a very difficult and defenseless location. I find that often God loves to lead us to places of great difficulty, not so that we might experience difficulty for difficulty's sake, but so that we might experience the great hand and glory of God, so that we might see his strength and his might afresh in a brand new situation in our lives. One of the other things that we notice here is that in verse 3, he says, Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. Basically, the route that God was causing the people of Israel to go would indicate a huge change in direction for Israel. That change in direction would not go unnoticed by Pharaoh. He would perhaps have scouts following them, this mass of two to three million people. And when he heard that Israel was changing direction, his interpretation of that change in direction would not be, well, the Lord must be leading them. No, his interpretation would be they are wandering in the land. In other words, these people don't know where they're going and the wilderness has entrapped them. He now believes that he's got them in a difficult spot and can entrap them once again. And what you're basically seeing here is that through all of the trials, through all of the plagues, through all of the death, Pharaoh's heart is still not broken. Even after the death of his firstborn son, Pharaoh's pride is lifted up inside of his heart and he wants to go get these slaves and bring them back into Egypt to serve him and all of that. And so he thinks that their divine help from God has left them and he now wants to militarily pursue them. But God says through it all in verse 4, he says, no, I'm doing all of this in order to get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. God was taking them on this impossible route and bringing them into this place of battle against the Egyptians in order to show the Egyptians once more that he is the true and only God and worthy of worship. And so he declares, I'm doing all of this. For my glory. Now in verse 5, it goes on and says that when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So what happens here in verse 5 is that in addition to the intel that the people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness, that they've changed course and turned directions, another interpretation that Pharaoh made of this whole event or what he had spied out was that in verse 5 it says he was told that the people had fled. Now, to be fair, Moses had previously referred, back in Exodus 3, 
Exodus 5 and in Exodus 8, Moses had previously referred to a three-day journey into the wilderness. And so, you know, even though there were other moments where it seems as if God's deliverance was going to be final and complete and that their request was to actually depart forever and for good, there were moments, at least during the plagues, where the request was a temporary trip out into the wilderness to honor and to serve the Lord. Now, of course, all of that was removed from the table once the Passover and the angel of death had come. This was God's final and complete deliverance for the people of Israel. But once they go past three days of journeying, it's told to Pharaoh in the sense of, hey, Pharaoh, the people are fleeing. They're not going to stick with the three-day plan. They instead are running for their lives and fleeing from you. And so they respond, Pharaoh and those around him, with, hey, we've got to go collect and get our slaves. So they get for themselves, in verse 7, 600 chosen chariots. These are choice chariots. In other words, these are very advanced chariots of the day. Chariots were already an advanced military weapon, but these were the most advanced of the advanced. And all the other chariots of Egypt were also there with officers over all of them. Now it's interesting because chariots in scripture often depict the arm of the flesh. Often in scripture you have sort of a God versus the chariots kind of scenario. And, you know, we might not think much of chariots in our modern era. Maybe you think of some old movie or something like that and you see these guys rolling around in their chariots and you think to yourself, what a weak kind of weapon. But in that era, the chariot was an advanced military weapon. There wasn't a whole lot that you could do to stop it in that era. And so when you see a chariot in scripture, you've got the fullness of the strength of mankind. Psalm 20 verse 7 says it this way, and this is very typical of scripture. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so the Lord looks upon his people for all times and he says, listen, trust me, depend upon me. Don't lean upon horses. Don't lean upon chariots. Be a person who trusts in the name of the Lord. And as we're going to see in this chapter, at least, and as you'll see throughout all of scripture, God is more trustworthy than any chariot could ever be. I hope that you're leaning upon the strength of the Lord. I hope that you're leaning upon his might. I hope that you're leaning upon his power. We're not to build or to trust our own fleshly ingenuity. Oh, there's a place for the wisdom that God gives to us. There's a place for strong work ethic and all of that. But at the end of the day, we had better be able to say, it wasn't my chariot, it wasn't my horse, it wasn't my ingenuity, it wasn't my ability or my resources that won this battle for me. At the end of the day, I simply trusted in the Lord. The Lord strengthened me, the Lord helped me, the Lord gave to me the victory. And so Israel here up against it as these chariots come rushing out to them. It says in verse 8, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This has happened continually. 
the sovereign Lord hardening the heart of Pharaoh. He was the one who began this hardening. But the Lord confirmed that hard-heartedness and also hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. So Pharaoh and his armies, they go out pursuing the people of Israel. And I love the phrase, well, the people of Israel were going out defiantly. It's actually a phrase that means that they went out with rejoicing and celebrating. There is this great gladness as they're departing from Egypt. And when Pharaoh and his forces, verse 10, drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? For what have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now this is a fascinating turn of events. Here are the Israelites marching out into the wilderness, doing it defiantly. They're rejoicing. They are celebrating. There is great gladness. And the moment they see Pharaoh and his army, notice what it says in verse 10. It says they feared greatly. There was this overwhelming sense of concern. And they cry out to Moses. They don't cry out to the Lord. They don't remember the victories of the Lord. No, they cry out to a man. And they cry out to Moses. And really with a scoffing kind of heart, they say, listen, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? That was a sarcastic kind of comment from the Israelites. The Egyptians specialized in the burial process. Some have said that three quarters of their land mass was available for grave sites. Obviously, there were graves in Egypt and they're just complaining to Moses saying, look, we're about to die. And what you're seeing here is that fear is overwhelming the heart of the nation. You know, fear is an absolute killer because it causes us to lose sight of God and therefore to think irrationally. You know, once you lose a vision of God, once you lose the sight of his protection, his provision, his defense, once you begin to walk by sight rather than walking by faith, as Paul tells us we're to do in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, once you're walking by sight, that fear rushes into your heart and it begins to paralyze you. No, fear and faith cannot dwell together. It is one or the other. And here is the beginning of the testing of the people of Israel. And immediately we see something that we're going to find repeated time and time again in a time of fear or worry or complaint or distress or even just minor discomfort. They will rush not to God, but to Moses and cry out, to him. Now in verse 13, 
Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I think there was probably a little emphasis there on the last little phrase from Moses. Listen, you've got one job. Be quiet. Moses is going to get an earful from the people time and time again. And I love the word that Moses speaks to them from the Lord. He says, there are three things that you need to do. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. One of the most repeated exhortations throughout all of Scripture from God to his people is the encouragement, the exhortation to be courageous or to fear not. And God continually urges us towards a fearless kind of heart. But not only that, he says, fear not, but stand firm. In other words, don't budge. Don't move to the right or to the left. Don't go backwards or forwards. Stand firm. Some translations say, stand still. And he says, and see. The third thing, the salvation of the Lord. God just simply urged them to stand still and to watch him work. I can remember a particular season in my life where the Lord began to speak this exact word into my heart for a period of six or seven months where I really just didn't know what to do and was in great trial. I felt like I was encamped in this very difficult spot. And I sensed the Lord continually. Every time I would cry out to him, every time I would get alone with him or head out on a hike and just try to pour out my heart before the Lord. Anytime sleeplessness would get the best of me and I would lie there just saying, Lord, what is going on? What are you doing? And where are you in this situation? The Lord was so faithful into my life to continue to say, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And I rejoice because by standing still, the Lord allowed me to see his salvation in such a strong and wonderful way. Moses announces to them in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. This was a lesson that they needed to learn. The ability, the power, the might of God himself. Now verse 15, says, so the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So God is giving Moses directions. He says, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all its host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. So once again, there's one last victory for God to win. Not over the false gods of the Egyptians. He's already won every victory over them. But now over the military might of the Egyptians, the pinnacle of the strength of the flesh of man. And God gives Moses these great directions. Go, take your staff, stretch out your hand, and the waters of the Red Sea will be parted. You go through it and Pharaoh will pursue you into it and I will crush him through those waters, 
win a great victory and receive the glory. That's interesting because he's to do this by lifting up the staff. It's interesting. The staff would be lifted up and open a way when there was no way. And of course, this reminds us of the cross of Christ. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, there was a way provided to us where there was no way previously. And that way led to God himself. So just a wonderful picture here of salvation in general of God's people. Full deliverance. As God takes us through and baptizes us, so to speak, immerses us in himself and makes a way where there was no way. Then verse 19, the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So this is fascinating. There has been this cloud or this pillar of smoke or fire that is leading the nation or going over the nation, and the angel of God is also going before them, which is perhaps a theophany. And here, now, instead of being in front of the nation, the angel and the cloud move to behind the people of Israel, and give this protective wall between the Egyptians and the Israelites, so much so that it says in verse 20 that it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So all night, God was visibly protecting the people of Israel. And I believe here that this visible protection of God should cause us to be more sure of the invisible protection of God. You know, the Lord is so faithful to watch over us. And we might not be able to see a pillar or a cloud. We might not be able to see the angel of the Lord. But to understand and know that in the invisible realm, God is faithfully watching over us. God is faithfully protecting us. God is faithfully defending our lives. Now, verse 21, it says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Now, just a miraculous event here. But in verse 21, it tells us that the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. All night long, this wind blew. And after a night, these walls were formed and the wind had blown so strongly and forcefully from the Lord that the ground was hardened or congealed underneath them. And... The Egyptians then, when the cloud is removed, they pursue them into the midst of the sea. The very thing that delivered the Israelites doomed the Egyptians. And their conclusion, 
after their chariot wheels are clogged and they drive heavily, they say, the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Uh, Psalm 77, verse 16 through 19, hint at the idea that in the midst of this battle or this pursuit, God also caused a rainstorm and lightning and thunder and an earthquake to slow down the Egyptian armies. Then, verse 26, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Lord, verse 30, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. And so the people here finally come to this place. All of these plagues, the Passover. After passing through the Red Sea and observing this miraculous victory, notice that it says in verse 31 that the people then feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. You know, this would be sort of the template for the people of Israel to live by. There would be moments of fearing the Lord and believing in the Lord. There would also be moments that they would experience a great faithlessness and would fear man or fear circumstances. And the frustrating thing with Israel is that they would constantly live in between this reality of fear and of faith and trust and complaining. And of course, the Lord wants to take us into a greater place, a place of trust, a place of confidence, a place of dependence upon him without worry and just believing that he is able, that he can defend us. But in this chapter, as it says in verse 30, the Lord saved Israel. It wasn't Moses who saved, it was the Lord who saved. They may have cried out to Moses, but it was the Lord who came through. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, with commentary on this chapter, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What Paul is saying is that there was a spiritual meaning of this event in Exodus chapter 14. The crossing of that Red Sea was a type of the believer's union with Christ. You know, we die to the old life and we're resurrected to a new life in him. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. The Passover illustrates the death of Jesus for us, the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the crossing of the Red Sea introduces us into his resurrection life. 
delivers us from death and captivity and absolutely sets us free. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin, but we've also been delivered from the power of sin by the grace of God. I would encourage you to read Romans 6 through 8 to see the wonderful freedom that we have from the power of sin today because Jesus Christ has delivered us in one sense through our own Red Sea. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.